Perhaps you've experienced the pain of losing someone close to you in death. Perhaps someone you thought was far too young or maybe through circumstances that you didn't fully understand or didn't understand at all. Things happen in our lives. Death is part of it. We're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning looking at the death and the raising of Lazarus. Uh, This passage hits at the core uh, of the human condition surrounding death and grief and, uh, and loss. But it also springboards into the hope that each of us have individually in Christ. We're going to go as far as we can this morning in chapter 11. It's a long chapter. It is packed. I've been looking forward to teaching this chapter for a while. Uh, It's packed. And so I don't know how far we'll get. We might get through the whole thing, but I've called this part one just in case because I know me. (laughs) And I'll probably rabbit trail a bunch, but you guys know that too. Anyway, as we get into chapter 11, I, I, you know, I, I always like to back up and catch the context. What's going on in the background here? What's happening on the scene? And, and when we looked at chapter 10, we saw that chapter 10 opened the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Feast of Booths there in Jerusalem, where Jesus uh, is with the woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And we go through all of that. And then, then the, day, uh, the days following, he when, as we look in chapter 10, that uh, he had these just heated debates with the religious leaders going back and forth and back and forth, illustrating to them their completely being off. And then we looked at him coming and actually healing a guy that had been born blind. And we went through that. We looked at all of that. And then last week, we saw that the scene shifted and it went from six months out which was about six months before Jesus went to the cross when he was at the Feast of Tabernacles to about three months out. Then in the winter time, uh, when he was at the Feast of Lights, the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, which is what it's called today, uh, where the the Jews celebrate uh, the rededication of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes during the, the intertestamental period had come and desecrated the temple. And then we looked at the scene shifted again to where the, the religious leaders were hot. I mean, they'd been heating up for a long time. And at this point, they were filled with hatred towards Jesus. We'll look at that. Uh, And and so Jesus got out of Jerusalem and he went to uh, a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan or Bethabara is the other name for it. I I believe it's the same place. Uh, About 20 miles from Jerusalem, well, about 22 miles, about 20 miles from Bethany uh, in Judea, and we'll look at that again this morning as we're looking at Mary and Lazarus and uh, Martha, where they lived on the east side of the Mount of Olives in Bethany. And so Jesus has been down there, and it says, many are coming to faith. Many are coming to believe in him as he had gone back to the place where he was baptized himself three years prior. By the time we finish this chapter, we will go to six days before Jesus was executed and spend Uh, many weeks studying uh, the volume of information, the teaching, primarily teaching his men uh, after this uh, about the things of the kingdom of God. And so the background here is he has been down, it's it's, sort of uh, a little bit to the northeast 
of Jerusalem, about, like I said, 20, 22 miles. Uh, this place just on the other side of the Jordan River is called the Place of the Crossing. It's probably where Joshua took Israel in, the same place. It's, it had been called that historically over many hundreds of years where the Israelites, as, after they had 40 years wandering in the wilderness, where they crossed into Canaan, uh, the same area. It was the place of the ford or the, or the crossing. So that's where he is. That's where he's ministering. And word comes to him about his friend being sick. So as we look at this, it's interesting. The disciples think that Lazarus uh, has got a temporary illness. And Jesus knows he's temporarily dead. Uh, quite a contrast there. And so it's interesting as we look at Lazarus, his name literally translates, God is our help. And he definitely needed help at this point in his life or his death. Uh, and, and I want to also note that this is not the same Lazarus as in Luke chapter 16. The rich man and Lazarus, you remember you read about that and, and he said, you know, go and, and you know, tell my brothers and all that. No, that's not the same Lazarus. That's a, it's a whole different guy. So this is a guy, he's a very close friend of Jesus. He and his family, uh, they were part of Jesus's inner circle. And this is, there's some very intimate interaction between them because when Jesus went to this area of the country, he would often lodge with them and he found a place to rest. I mean, as you know, the son of man had no place to lay his head. And so uh, what Mary and Martha and Lazarus provided for him was a, a safe home, a godly home and a place for him to go and, and to show up with his guys. And we know from the other gospels that Martha was the busy one and uh, she, was, she would have been the one that would accommodate them. And, and, and if Jesus showed up, you could count on at least 12 other guys showing up with him. Uh, so when you're having company and Jesus is coming, you've got, you've got quite a bit to do. And she was uh, upset about that. We see that in Luke chapter 10. But uh, anyway, just by way of background, this is a, a, it's a wonderful, it's a marvelous miracle that Jesus does when he actually reanimates Lazarus's body. He raises him from the dead. This is a sign that foreshadows for us the hope that those of us who have faith in Christ have in the resurrection. It is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ himself for him to exercise power over death. We see that his miracles had been increasing. He had been, they'd been getting uh, more and more extravagant in that sense. And it's interesting. Uh, there's a theologian by the name of J.S. Whale, and this is what he said about the resurrection. He said that the gospels do not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the gospels. Belief in the resurrection is not an appendage to the Christian faith. It's not added on. It is the Christian faith. This is central stuff, guys. This is central to our understanding of not only the transaction that Jesus did when he went to that cross and then he rose from the dead. It's central to our understanding. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't do that, we have most of all people are the most to be pitied. And, and we've been running in vain and our faith is in vain. Because the resurrection of Jesus, as we'll see, is central. And, and when he exercises power over death, the greatest enemy of humanity, death, it's the thing that we all live our lives in denial of. He's exercising power over the very existence of, of human beings and, and his, his ability to actually, again, bring them back from the dead. And this is a temporary death for Lazarus. He would live to die again. Uh, but when he died again, he would be part of the great resurrection of souls that Jesus promises to any who would come. So uh, 
This is the last of the seven signs which John focuses on in the Gospel of John. We saw in chapter 2, he turned water into wine there at Cana at the wedding. Uh, He healed the official's son in chapter 4. Remember from a distance, he was at Cana and the guy came and he said, you know, my, uh, my, my son is sick. And, and then he made the lame guy walk at the pool of Bethesda there when he went to Jerusalem. He walked up and said, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made well? And the guy took up his pallet and walked out of there. Uh, we saw where he fed the multitudes, where he took the loaves and the fish and he broke them and broke them and broke them. And they fed 5,000 men, 15,000 probably people there that day. And then that night, uh, also in, in John chapter 6, where the guys are out on the boat on the lake, he walks on the water, coming walking toward them. They were freaked out. They thought he was a ghost. They didn't know what to do. And, and there we see that's where Peter went. He walked on the water through the other Gospels. Remember when we taught that, we blended the Gospel accounts so that we could get, because that miracle is in all four. We looked at all of that. And then we saw here in the last couple of weeks, the last few weeks, where he actually gave sight to a man who was born blind to where he caused that man's eyes to be made whole. He caused him to be able to see for the first time. And, and we looked at as he perhaps was washing the mud that Jesus had made out of his spit, out of his eyes at the pool of Siloam, to where perhaps he began to see at that moment that his vision was clearing up. And the first time he would look, he would see his hands in the water. He'd, he'd felt water, but he'd never seen water. He'd heard his parents, but he'd never seen his parents. He had felt his way around, but he'd never seen the temple. He'd never seen his surroundings. And what a, a, an awesome, tremendous thing that would be. And the whole while, the religious leaders just being torqued because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. I mean, we see their puny ideas of God and godliness, and we see Jesus' grand ideas and grand plans for man through these accounts, through these miracles. Each miracle sort of preaches itself as, as far as an aspect to God's nature, his character. This, this great miracle that he does, as I mentioned, uh, I, don't, I can't think of a greater miracle that someone could do than to actually bring somebody back to life that had been dead for four days. Uh, like in the King James, it says, he stinketh. That's what Martha says. He stinks. By, don't do, don't take that stole, stone away. I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's, it's a miraculous thing. It's, it's a marvelous thing. Uh, we see also that John wrote selectively. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we visited this before, we'll visit it again, because it's really the theme of this book. He says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John didn't write all of the things that he watched Jesus do but he selected these seven miracles to bring the point across that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the one. He is the one that had been promised from centuries past, going all the way back, that he was the Messiah, that he was the chosen one of God, not just the Messiah, but God in the flesh. God coming into his own creation as a man. As Jesus ups the ante here. We've seen that. Every one of his exchanges with the religious leaders, with the Jews, uh, was getting more and more heated, and they were getting more and more aggressive. Remember last week, we looked, they surrounded him. They wanted to hem him in, and then they picked up rocks and, and, and were going to stone him, and, and when he was ready to leave, he just walked out of there. 
but they're getting more and more vehement in their assertion that this guy needs to be dealt with and he needs to be dealt with straight away. And so now on the other side of the Jordan River, they're in a place of relative safety, even though there are still people that are coming that are, that are opposed to him. Uh, he's in a place of relative safety, but he's going to end up going back, going close to Jerusalem now, and it's going to get heated up again. Why the hatred, though? Uh, as he ups the ante, more people divide, and there's deep threats and greater hate towards him. And, and John gave us the answer back in chapter 3, and he says in, in verse 19, he says, and this is the condemnation. He's talking to Nicodemus that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done or wrought in God. It's the same thing today, folks. We talk about the division that happens. You send a Christian into a room of just assorted people, there will be people that are polarized because Jesus does that. He just does. People, I mean, there are people in my family that don't want anything to do with me. Not because of me, but because of Christ in me. And, and I think about in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 2, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. So we have fellowship. There's this, this communi communion that happens when we have fellowship with one another. When uh, I talked to Chuck yesterday afternoon on the phone, and, and I just got off the phone and I thought, I just love that guy. Uh, because it, the Holy Spirit bears witness. And, and, and we're, we're part of the same body of Christ. We are members one of another, the Bible tells us. And, and so there's this special connection that we share that's closer than family. It's closer than blood. And yet he says, we're, we're the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one were the aroma of death leading to death. I mean, people don't like, it's, it's, they do not like the light of Christ. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They want to shut you out and shut you up and don't even come at me with this. I mean, I've literally had people start making rules for me before I open my mouth. But it's spiritual darkness. It's, that's that repulsion that people have. It's the aroma of death leading to death. But he says, on the other hand, we're the aroma of life leading to life. So with some people, you smell good. And some people, you kind of stink. It's really about the only way I can put it. But, you know, this chapter is about that life. This chapter, chapter 11, is about the life that we have in Christ. Verse 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. This is not the same Bethany as Jesus is out on the other side of the river. It's Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's why they call it that. This is close in. It's just on the eastern side. It's just over the hill, the ridge in the Mount of Olives. Walked through there one time. Just a, 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 Well, now it's kind of a part of the whole city, but uh, back then it was a small village. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This is John's first mention of Bethany, also of this family. And as I mentioned, they're a very close family. They're special to the Lord. They are, they're part of his circle of friends. 
Uh, Matthew and Mark, incidentally, don't name this Mary. John identifies this Mary as the one who had wiped her feet with his feet with her hair. And we, we'll look at that when we get to chapter 12. In the next chapter, we see that actually played out. But it's also in a couple of the other Gospels, but they don't name who it was. Uh, and yeah, there's different people have different opinions on that. I think the one that fits the best is when uh, Matthew and Mark wrote, the church was under great persecution. And I believe they didn't want to identify her for her own safety. Uh, so he assumes, though, that we know who he's talking about. We know, he, he makes the assumption that we know Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, and there are six Marys in the New Testament. So he wants to make sure we get the right one. That's why he makes this connection. Interesting, Jesus honors Mary in uh, in. in Matthew, uh, chapter 26, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. We'll look at that more when we get to chapter 12. But uh, the intimate relationship that she had with Jesus, the love relationship she had. We'll look this morning. When she, when she encounters, encounters Jesus, she worships. She is constantly seen as being at his feet. When she falls at his, at his feet, she does so here in chapter 11, in Luke chapter 10, when uh, she was there uh, with Jesus and Martha, and uh, we'll look at that. Uh, again, she falls at his feet. She just loved the Lord. So we want to see here that this is a home. It's a Christian home. It's a, it's a, it's a godly home in that sense. And it's worth noting that there's sickness there. Now, there are those out there in the spiritual realm that will claim that sickness has no place in the home of a Christian. I'm here to tell you that is absolutely patently false. Sickness does happen. Death will visit you and I at some point, physical death. Uh, the fact of the matter is whether or not death has lost its sting. Because as children of God, death does lose its sting. I, I was thinking about it the other day. And I thought, you know, Lord, I guess I really believe this stuff. Because I remember as a younger Christian, I would kind of give lip service to the fact, oh, yeah, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And I think, oh, man, you know, and I would get all freaked out about it. And I, as I get older, I, I just, it's just a settled issue with me. I mean, my only concern is that if I die before my wife, I want her to be taken care of. I mean, and that's a legitimate concern for any guy. But, I mean, barring that... It really doesn't bother me. I really am not, and, I, and, and I, it, again, it surprises me because this flesh, man, I'll tell you, there's this need to stay alive that we have, and, and it can really get in there and start messing with our heads. But truly, when we understand death from God's perspective, we see that it is not something to be feared. It's something to be actually, to, to, to be in a, in a position of seeing that, that death is something that is, common to man. It's part of the fall. It's part of living on a fallen planet where decay is the rule of the day. And yet it's a point of graduation where, yeah, I'll shed this body, but my soul will go on. I've got a new body that is reserved for me that gravity hasn't taken hold of, praise God. Um, that, that is a wonderful thing. The, the promises that God has for us in death from this life are marvelous, they're wonderful, and, and they're worth spending time with. And we'll spend some time with that uh, in this chapter as we go along. Verse three, therefore the sisters sent to him, 
saying, Lord, behold, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, interesting, the word love there is phileo. And it's, a, it's it, agape is the godly love. That's the, 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 uh, the deep, sacrificial, unconditional love that God has for us. The love that they're expressing, that they're saying, he, who, he whom you are fond of, he whom you love as a friend uh, is sick. And, and they're essentially saying, he who you have this fond affection for uh, in Lazarus is sick. The verb used when we see this in, is sick, uh, it's interesting. It means great weakness or exhaustion. It's safe to assume that they knew that he was dying. He was not just sniffly. He was sick. I mean, he was really sick. Sick enough to, to where they got a messenger, they got a runner, and this guy ran 20 miles to track Jesus down on the other side of the Jordan River to let him know. Uh, I think it's interesting. They don't, they don't look at Jesus' relationship with Lazarus on the basis of Lazarus' love for Jesus. They look at it on the basis of Jesus' love for Lazarus. He whom you love is sick. And I think that that's a great way for us to approach Jesus ourselves. It's a great way for us to approach him. It's not based on my love for him. We love him because he loved us first. It's based on his love for us. And they know, they, they don't boss him around. They don't say, hey, he whom you love is sick, get over here now. They just simply lay it out there. And they're trusting that he's going to do what he needs to do. Now, they're going to be disappointed. We'll see that as we go along. But they're simply trusting. And they send this runner and he just gives the information and says, you know, Lazarus is sick. He whom you love is sick. As we approach Jesus, we, we need to understand and to realize that his promises are for us. His faithfulness to us is something that we can count on. And his love surrounds us. Uh, it's important. These guys understood that. They understood that it was about Jesus and not them. It's interesting, think about the love that Jesus had, that he chose to love Lazarus, the same as he chooses to love you, to love me. And love is a choice. You look at other world religions and, and love is not part of it. It's just not. Uh, and that is what fuels the new covenant. It's the love of God for us. And I'm not talking about a warm, fuzzy love. I'm not talking about an emotional love. I'm talking about a sturdy, dependable uh, love that you can count on, that you can bake on, that you know that it's God choosing you and, and that your response is to simply love him back. That's why the Bible tells us that we love him because he loved us first. In John chapter 15... Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. And you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the father in my name, that he may give you. That is a friendship unlike any friendship that you could experience on this earth. When Jesus says, I don't call you servants, I call you a friend. He means it. 
And the love that he backs that up with, up with, the love of the covenant. I mean, the language of heaven, guys, I've mentioned before, the language of heaven is love. And that's what it runs on. Again, not, a, not an earthly, conditional, or, or emotional love, but, but a love that we, you know, I, when I'm sometimes uh, just having private time alone with the Lord, uh, praying and, and just having fellowship with him, there are times where this love just wells up in my heart, and it's like, oh, Lord, you, you just have done so much in my life. You, you have just poured out your spirit in ways that I never thought you would. You've, you have touched my heart in some very deep ways, and I, I simply love you. It's that kind of love that I'm responding to, more than a friend. Mary and Martha's communication to him was not in commandments. As I mentioned, they didn't boss him around but it was through the communion that they shared with him. Verse four, and when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now that's a real churchy, biblical sounding sentence, isn't it? Yeah, it's for the glory of God. What, is, what does he mean? Simply, he as the light of the world is coming to glorify the father. The father is glorifying him. And what it is, is to shine the light on him. He is to shine the light on the Father as the, the Father shines the light on him because he's going to shine some light in a dark place there in Bethany. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit difficult for us to understand what glory is, but it is the greatness of God. It, it's, it's God's glory. When I want God to be glorified in my life, it's because I want people to see how great he is. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about him. And that's what Jesus is modeling here for us is, is this whole deal where over and over again in, in the gospel of John, he says, you know, I, my father has sent me and I have been sent to glorify him. And in and, and John 17, we'll see when Jesus prays the night before he goes to the cross that he's saying, I, I've, I've glorified you, father, and you have glorified me. And I have given what you've given me to these men. And now I pray that they would be glorified in you. And, and, and it's just a beautiful thing. It's what connects us, the glory of God. Verse four is a key verse, uh, why? Why suffering? Why death? He says that he's gonna, it's not for, for uh, unto death, but for the glory of God. And we know that Lazarus dies, so what does he mean? What he's indicating here is he's gonna use these things and they're the result of living in a fallen world and they're gonna, he's gonna use them for his glory. Verse five, now Jesus loved, and here he uses the word agapeo, it's, it's the deep sacrificial love. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Martha here, Martha is an interesting individual. I look at this, some people are dots, some people are dashes. In Luke chapter 10, it says, now it happened that as they went, that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And as she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And as she approached him, she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, 
but one thing is, is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha is a dot. I mean, everything is organized. She is the one serving. She is the one that she's actually upset with her sister here in Luke 10 and saying, well, you know, how come I'm out here in the kitchen and she's just sitting in the living room, just hanging out, taking it easy. And, and she's not seeing the value in Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. And very often when people come into the church and they express a, a, a desire to serve in some way, it's a good thing. And yet, my desire as a pastor is that people come in and they sit at the feet of Jesus and learn that, that we get to know them, that they get to know us, and we get to, we build a relationship that's not based around service because service flows from relationship. It's never a means towards it. Many people, many churches get that wrong. You walk in the door and all of a sudden you're in the children's ministry for the next 10 years and you don't even know the pastor's name, and that's an exaggeration, but I mean, it happens kind of like that. Fellowship with God. I, I, I've asked people, what were we created for? And they often will say, for, for serving God. And I'll say, no, that's not it. It's, it's fellowship with God that we were created for. That was broken in the garden. It was restored in Christ. And we now have full open access to fellowship with God through Christ. And it's a wonderful, beautiful relationship that he offers. And we need to build that and to nourish that and, and to prioritize the relationship we have with him out of that he puts us to work out of that he burdens our hearts like he did with chuck and joanne a year ago if you'd asked them do you, you want to go to kenya and plant a church they just said you're not no they i don't know what they'd said but but i mean it was not even thought of it wasn't even part of their thinking but out of the relationship flows fruitful service uh, again, I've mentioned it before, but it's, it's sort of a hot button with me, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but I mean it's, it's an area that I, I am concerned because I don't want to see people cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service. And it can happen. It can happen. Uh, so I see here that, that Mary or Martha is sort of a dot. She's organized. She's got everything. All her ducks are in a row, and she's, she's the one that's doing all the serving and doing all the stuff. And, and here's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you know, she chose the better part. The stuff will get done, Martha. And so Mary's kind of a dash. Um, I <laughs> think about my wife and I. I. She's more of a dot. She likes things a certain way, and I'm just kind of a dash, and I'm like, eh, whatever. But and and there's value in both of those, and we balance. That. I, I love the fact that God put us together because we really do. We complement, we balance one another, and it's just an interesting dynamic here. We see that with Mary and Martha. Verse six. So when he'd heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Does that? bug you as much as it bugs me uh, and yet how many times have i prayed oh lord there's this need there's this thing going on and and i don't see an immediate change uh, i don't see that he's stepping in like what's going on don't you realize how drastic the situation is Jesus' answer to their request, and, and they weren't requesting. Again, they were leaving him to his own, but they had an expectation that he was going to come. We see that further in the text. However, when Jesus hears these things, Lazarus is sick. The one whom you love is sick. He says, you know what? Let's stick around 
for a couple of days. That's not how we do things. We drop everything and go. I mean, and that's, you know, very often what God does. I mean, he comes to us in our, in our troubles. He really does. And yet here we see that Jesus on purpose stays. I'd submit to you that Jesus is doing something by doing nothing in this case. Think about Jesus. I mean, he loved these guys, and he knew that Lazarus was going to die. He did. I mean, he, he knew what was going to happen before it happened. And he loved Lazarus, and he knew that it was going to be difficult. He knew that he would get there, and they would be grieved. He knew all of this, and yet he still waited. Remember, the purpose in this is that God would be glorified, that the purposes of God, that the plan of God would be manifest in these people's lives, and he would enlarge their faith through it. Very often when we face difficult circumstances, it's not because God wants to, you know, I, I think about uh, when my daughter went to heaven. Uh, many times had mentioned uh, in the intervening years that uh, God didn't do that. He didn't take my daughter's life so he could work in my heart. I mean, he's not that kind of God. And yet he uses everything. And he has used that, that particular event more profoundly in my life. Uh, I wrote one time, were it not for the lessons that can only be learned when your life is pressed in on every side, when you're just a big pile of hurt and grief and heartache, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. And yet there are things that God works through those times of grief, through those times of sorrow, through those times of loss. Open your heart. People either are repulsed by God in times of great loss or they're drawn to him. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what events have happened in your life, and some I do. And yet I know that he's good and that he's working things for his glory through these things. These are very serious things to discuss. And, and yet, we want to be faithful to what the Bible puts forth. And here, we see Jesus getting this news that somebody that he cared about very much and choosing to stay for a couple more days without jumping right out there and going straight to him. Interesting, the messenger returned to Bethany as I mentioned, it was about 20 miles, and I'm sure they expected Jesus. But as Jesus waited, think about how difficult it would have been for him. Um, there's a general principle in this, that Jesus delayed coming to his faithful and loving followers in Bethany in order that he might strengthen their love for him and their faith in him. These people's faith needed to be enlarged. And I'll tell you, I don't like that. And I'm just being straight up with you. I don't like the fact that where God does some of his finest work is through our brokenness. And yet it's true. It's true. He's far more interested in what he wants to do in the depths of your heart, in your life, than how comfortable you are at a particular moment. Uh, many times uh, I've thought, man, I didn't sign up for this when I asked Jesus into my life. And yet, I, I, I have come to the point, I've grown to the point that I, I know that I did. And it's not always comfortable. It's not always easy. It's not always uh, this 
kind of silly notion that people put out there about God is just going to prosper you and it's going to be health, wealth, and prosperity and it's all good. And if you're you know, not experiencing that, that you don't have enough faith and all this garbage that people heap on. But it's a tough walk at times. And, and, and there's a time for doctrine, but there's also a time to just come alongside and to love people where they're at, to love with the love, uh, to, to comfort people with the same comfort with which you've been comforted in those times of distress. Very difficult. And these people are headed into a very difficult situation with Jesus. The thing that Jesus could draw comfort from was knowing that the Father's timing in this would be perfect. Then after he said this to his disciples, uh, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? How often we like to remind the Lord of things he already knows. (laughs) Usually it's when there is risk or pain or hardship or loss involved on my end. Lord, don't you know? I'm perishing over here. Don't you know how hot it is? Don't you know? Yes, he does. And again, he's working something deep in these people's lives, often working something in our lives. Uh, Peter says, why are you surprised at the fiery ordeal that springs up among you? He says, don't be. Jesus never says that he's going to keep us from going through those times of trial, those times of testing. He says he promises that he'll be with us in those things, but he never promises us to keep us from those things. As a matter of fact, he tells us we'll go through them. Uh, Again, I look at the prosperity gospel that's peddled out there, and I think, wow, 11 of the 12 original disciples died violent deaths for their testimony of Christ. They knew, they counted the costs, and, and, and men don't die for a lie. They knew, they saw the things that Jesus experienced. They saw the crucifixion. They saw the resurrection. And they knew that this was the only source of truth that that really exists. And they counted it worth their lives. Verse nine, and Jesus answered and said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What he's saying here is his earthly ministry isn't over yet. There were still hours left. Nothing could stop him. And he was going to shine his light in Bethany. And he knew that that was something that the Father was commissioning him to do, and he was going to do it. Uh, when he says 12 hours in the day, remember we talked about that. Jewish days were from sunup to sundown, and they were divided into 12 equal parts. So when it talks about the third hour, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Remember in the book of Acts, they thought they were drunk. It was only the third hour. They thought, oh, these guys are all <laughs> hammered at 9 a.m. And, and you know, they, didn't, you know, they weren't looking at that too well, and they realized after that it was the Holy Spirit that had descended upon them. Well, and then we see that Jesus has said that he died, that he literally gave up the ghost at the ninth hour. That was three in the afternoon. So in the wintertime, there were 12 shorter hours because the sun up to sundown was shorter amount of time. In the summertime, they stretched out. So their hours shrank and stretched. But he's saying, literally, there are 12 hours in the day. That is a set time. 
and my time here on this earth is set. Nothing is going to hinder it. There's time, is what he's saying. Gentlemen, there's time. There's 12 hours in the day. I've got this. You could look at this in a couple of different ways. You could say there's enough time, a fixed time, 12 hours, or you could say that time is short. There are only 12 hours in the day. And I think both apply here. Uh, we're told to redeem the time wisely, for the days are evil. And we do. We want to redeem the time. We want to take the time that we've been allotted. Acts chapter 17. It's a wonderful passage where Paul is there. He's on Mars Hill um, uh, in Athens, Greece. And he goes up. He's been sharing the gospel all through the empire. And he gets down to Athens and, and he goes up onto Mars Hill uh, to the Areopagus is what it's called. It's where the Stoics and the philosophers, where the, the deep thinkers in Greece would hang out. And so he goes up, he sees a statue to an unknown God on his way up, and he says, well, let me tell you about that guy. And he goes and he starts to share the gospel. He never shares the cross. Different story altogether because he goes from Athens to Corinth and, uh, and he, he tells the people there when he writes back to Corinth, he said, when I first came to you, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I believe it's because he didn't share the cross and all of that when he was on Mars Hill. But he shared some really powerful stuff with these guys. And one of the things he said is he said, and he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Interesting. Each of us have a pre-appointed time. Uh, I've often thought about the passage, I think it's in Isaiah, that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. There is nothing that can happen to me. There's nothing that can happen to you that is outside the purview of God's will. And as we live out our lives, we can live out our lives with boldness in light of the fact that, you know what? It's all part of his plan. I know, he knows that there's a day out there that this body is going to perish. And so what do I do with my time in the meantime? I was blessed. I was talking to Joanne. Stacy and I went to Fred Meyer the other day. and uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Joanne. But after they got off the plane, after they got home, uh, this is like two days later, we walked into Fred Meyer and we saw her there and we were just chatting and she was just excited. And she said, you know, after we got home, uh, Chuck was able to talk to the guy, the young guy that had been taking care of their place. And the guy made a profession of faith as far as being led to the Lord. And she said, and then I was talking to uh, a woman that I know, and I was able to lay out the gospel for her, and she said that she wanted Christ. And I'm thinking, and I have to be straight up with you guys, I felt a little convicted talking to her, because I'm thinking, how come that doesn't happen with me? <laughs> and it wasn't like I was jealous, but it was like, there should be a sense of urgency in getting the gospel out. And these guys just came from a land where they had a 100% success rate with people choosing Christ. I mean, and, and we know that the results are up to God and, and some will go forward and some won't, all that stuff. But truly, I mean, they were in a land where you don't have to argue, start with arguing the existence of God. They all understand that real well. But they're going hut to hut, literally hut to hut. And the people are saying yes to Jesus all along. And they get home and it's kind of the same deal. It's like people are still saying yes. And I'm thinking, well, Lord, I just want to have more of that hunger to share your word. I want to have more of that, that 
unction inside from the Holy Spirit to, to be bold in my witness for you. Uh, anyway, just was blessed talking to her the other night. Verse 11, these things that Jesus said, and, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I'm going that I might wake him up. Sleep in the New Testament is a euphemism. That means it's, it's, a, it's a way to say it a little more lightly. Uh, for death. And uh, somebody want to get that? Um, <laughs> I don't know where it's coming from. It's coming through the speakers. Oh, anyway. Sleep is a euphemism for death in the New Testament. Look in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is warning the Corinthians about taking the, coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. He says, some of you are doing that in an unworthy man manner and because of that you sleep. And he's not talking about snoozing here. He's talking about death. And so Jesus is using the same, uh, again, it's, it's a, a metaphor or a euphemism for death using the word sleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about those who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. What's the hope that we have? In the resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Uh, the, body says, or the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, so how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile... Well, those who sleep. And the only way that it really makes sense is if you realize and you take a step back and you realize that God is outside of time. And so he sees the end from the beginning. He sees time in sort of a panorama in front of him. As, a, as an infinite, eternal being, he has the ability to do that. We don't. We see things in a linear way. We see what's behind us, what's past, and we look towards what's ahead of us, what's future, and God sees it all at once. And so... To sleep in Christ, I don't really go with the whole thing about soul sleep and all of that. I think that gets kind of weird. But uh, to be absent from the body, to be present, to be present with the Lord, but to be asleep in Christ. <laughs> but to be asleep in Christ is, is to simply be in that place that if you're looking at it, in time, it appears that way, but in eternity, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's one of those deals that I talked about recently that if we talk about eternal or infinite things, you can only go so far, and the rest you just have to take by faith because you realize those appear to be contradictory, but they're not. That's the point I wanted to make in that. Verse 12, and his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. So they think that he's just sleeping. They think he's just snoozing. <laughs> I've seen that with some of you here. But, uh, <laughs> but Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You know, sometimes there's no easy way to say it. Uh, doctors, uh, you, one of the hardest things that a doctor, uh, excuse me, I've read before, one of the most difficult things about their job is to be able to, to have to deliver to someone the news that their body is failing, that they're terminally ill, that they're going to die. Uh, I've dealt with uh, 
number of people over the years who have experienced that. And it's, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a big jolt when you realize. You know, humanity in general loves to spend, we spend our lives in denial of the fact that death is going to come to our door. Uh, we tend to think that every day will be like the last. And it's, it's healthy to understand that there is an end to this. But that end for us as believers is the beginning of something that will go on forever. And I just encourage you, do you really believe that? If you do, it will shape your life. You'll find that you walk with far less fear. You'll find that you walk with a, a sense of urgency. You'll find that you walk with a whole different attitude about life, accepting the fact that God has pre-appointed the boundaries of our habitation. He's pre-appointed the times that we would live our lives. Jesus says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there that you may believe. And nevertheless, let's go to him. So what good did Jesus see? I mentioned, and he's also said, that the faith of his followers would be enlarged. And he's going to do that. Some marvelous things come about, and we're almost out of time. But then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Again, thinking about the Jews being heated up and wanting to kill Jesus. Uh, I think it's interesting. This is just a side note. Thomas, who is called the twin, and we look at him doubting Thomas, you know, we sort of look at him as sort of the Eeyore Christian, oh, well, we're all going to die. Let's just go off to Bethany and we'll die with him. Come on, guys, let's go. And yet I think that he gets a bum rap. I really do. Um, he's faithful. He had a deep and abiding love for the Lord. Uh, yeah, he was the one that was doubting when Jesus resurrected. Let me see. I'm not quite buying this whole thing, you know. And, and Jesus has to show him the holes and all that. But I think it's also interesting that he's called the twin. Here, this doubting Thomas, this Eeyore Thomas. And, and the Bible doesn't ever tell us who his twin is. When I read this, I sometimes think, Lord... I could easily be this guy's twin because sometimes I'm filled with doubt and all of that. Though he didn't understand, he was very committed. That's the point. He's saying, you know what? I'm willing to go die with Jesus here. It may have been pessimistic. It may have lacked a, a, a fullness of understanding, but he was willing to go. He was down for it. And he's telling the other disciples, let's go. We're going to go with him. If that costs us our life, then so be it. So when Jesus came, verse 17, he found that he'd already been in the tomb for four days. So doing the math here, if it was 20 miles from Bethabara uh, or Bethany beyond the Jordan, 20 miles from there to Bethany on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, it was about a day's run for a runner. That's how they communicated in those days. They sent a runner. They sent somebody who would travel the distance and bring the news. So you've got a day there, and then Jesus waits two more days, and then Jesus makes the trek back to Bethany. Four days. It's pretty safe to assume that Lazarus died very, excuse me, very soon after the runner left and after he headed for Bethany. 
Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Isn't that typical? Typical fashion. Martha runs out to meet Jesus. Mary sits in the house. She's probably contemplating. She's probably mourning, no doubt mourning. I mean, they were grieved. And the Jews, they would mourn for a week um, when somebody that was close to them died. Uh, it, it was a very intense week. And they would wail and lament. I mean, a, a Jewish funeral was a long-lasting and very intimate and powerful event. And, and the Jews went and joined them. Uh, so the whole house would have been in this upset and this highly emotionally charged state. Martha hears, or she, as soon as she hears that Jesus is coming, and when you're in Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives, you can see out over the whole Jordan Rift. You can, I mean, the view from there is spectacular. You can see all the way down to Jericho, and Jesus would have been coming up the Jericho Road uh, as he came from across the river. So they probably saw his contingent coming from a distance. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So here's Martha, she's in pain. She's disappointed. She's sor sorrowful. But I, I think that Again, she has an unshakable faith. And she's saying, even now, Lord. Uh, and Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Uh, Jesus sees her faith and he makes her a promise. He gives her a picture of eternity here. And Martha says to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. How did Martha know about the resurrection? That's something that... Um, we don't talk about a lot uh, as far as the resurrection in the Old Testament, but it's clearly seen, and it would have been clearly taught. The Pharisees, if you remember, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Part of why the old joke, yeah, they were sad, you see, because there's no resurrection. But, <laughs> all right, I know, it's a stupid joke, but only have a couple of opportunities to tell it. But the point is, is that the Sadducees didn't. And that, that was the primary reason why they differed from one another. It was sort of the, they were the conservatives and the liberals. The Pharisees were considered the theological conservatives of their day, even though they were way out there. And, and the Sadducees were the more liberal-minded. Oh, no, it doesn't mean this, it means that. And, you know, making up stories about all that. And, and so there was a division over the resurrection. But in the book of Daniel, in chapter 12, uh, we read, And many of those who sleep, there's that word, sleep, in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Interesting. Tell me the gospel is not in the Old Testament. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn away uh, and those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Martha, like so many in the Gospel of John, was missing Jesus' point here as he said, your brother shall rise again. Remember, so often Jesus has illustrated a spiritual truth and it's just flown right over their head. Uh, and I could go back and go down the list. I won't take the time because we're out of time. 
And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then I picture his eyes just piercing into Martha as he says this. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? This is the fifth of the seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, essentially, this isn't a doctrine. It's, it's not a doctrine of the resurrection. I am the resurrection, Martha. It's not a doctrine uh, of life here. I am the life. I, I am the embodiment. I'm, I am the principle itself of the resurrection and of the life. And do you believe this? In this statement, he's, he's claiming two things. First, he's claiming to be God. I am. Ego ami. The covenant name of, name of God from Exodus chapter 3. The second thing he's doing is he's affirming Martha's belief in the resurrection. He doesn't correct her on this because she's right. Oh yeah, I know I'll rise again in the last day. Yeah, I understand all that, Jesus. He confirms and he clarifies to her, but he doesn't correct. In clarification, as he clarifies to her, and as he confirms these things to her, he's comforting Martha. He's doing what he can to bring her comfort. He's not getting doctrinal with her. She thinks he is. He's essentially saying, think beyond the theological and make this personal. We can miss it, folks. We can miss it. We can come and we can study God's word here week after week. We can study God's word at home. We can listen to Bible studies. We can do all the stuff. And if we don't make that critical step of applying God's word to our lives, we'll miss it. And Jesus is wanting her to connect the dots in, in a sense here. He's wanting to show her that he's not just giving her doctrine. He's not just giving her the doctrine of the resurrection. He's not just giving her the doctrine of life and death. He is those things. And he wants her to make it personal. This is why he came. He came that he would enlarge their faith. And he's in the process of doing that with Martha and in their dialogue, in their discourse here. And he'll do the same with her sister as he gets to her. She's unable to get past the theoretical and connect it to the theological, but this is why Jesus delayed. He wanted to make sure that Lazarus was absolutely, completely dead. I, I did some studying and I'm not sure, maybe I'll present it next week, I'm not sure if I will or not, because frankly, it's just really gross. I was looking at the medical aspects of somebody who had been dead for four days it is not pretty. I mean, you can't get a whole lot more dead than dead for four days. And, and I'm serious. They, they wanted to make, Jesus wanted to make sure that he wasn't accused of resuscitating Lazarus. He would raise him from the dead. He would bring life to his decayed body. She said to him, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. And when she had said these things, she walked away. No doubt, a little comfort. As I mentioned earlier, guys, there's a time where we just simply weep with those who weep. There's a time where we just simply bring comfort. 
This is a time where we just come alongside and love and pour into people. I've, you know, many times I've been to the hospital. Um, there have been few exceptions where I don't haul out my Bible. And I'm not saying the Bible's a bad thing. I'm saying there's a time for doctrine. There's a time to just come alongside and hurt when people are hurting. There's a time to, to come alongside and to be filled with compassion and to have the mind of Christ, to have the mind of God, not necessarily use the word of God. Yeah, that might come to bear in my behavior as I apply God's word to my life. And yet there's just a precious place where you identify with someone's sorrow, you identify with someone's grief. And we'll see that that's what happens with Jesus. It's what he's bringing about here. He's wanting to illustrate to her that, that it's not about the doctrines here. It's about his person and who he is. And we're going to see his humanity. Next week we'll see the humanity of Jesus expressed in this passage, perhaps more powerfully than any other place in the Gospels. As Jesus weeps over his friend Lazarus, but he weeps in a larger sense. He weeps over sin and death in general. A powerful passage. We're going to stop here. Um, get into it next week and hopefully wrap this part up. It, it's just a, there's so much left here to unpack. I would just encourage you, make sure to be here next week. Uh, if you can't, of course you can catch it online. But, but the truth of this is, is that I, I resist stopping in the middle of this chapter. I mean, I, I would love to just go on, but we're out of time. And uh, there's just a lot left, uh, really getting into the meat of the passage at this point. So with that, um, may the Lord bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief look at Lazarus and uh, uh, Mary and Martha, Jesus, the interaction between them and with one another. Lord, as we contemplate uh, being in the middle of this passage, you know, I just resist stopping, Father. I, I want to just keep going. And yet, I pray, Father, you would just bring to our remembrance the things we've looked at this morning. Speak to our hearts. Help us to apply your word, Lord, to make that critical step to apply your word to our lives, that we would walk out of this place enriched, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, Lord, that we'd be conformed to the image of your son, that we would be, um, as we have on the sign out front, that we'd be learning to think like Jesus a little more every day as we go along. We thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for your mercy, your compassion. We pray, Father, for, uh, for those who are sick right now, Lord. We, we pray for Derek. We pray for Terry. Uh, we pray for Jack, Nicholas. We pray, Father, that uh, for others, that you would, as the great physician, that you would come alongside, that you would heal, Lord, according to your will, not, not according to the whims of man, but according to your will, that you'd bring comfort and rest to all involved. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We love you, knowing that you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.